The Canucks drop another game in Florida, this time against the back-to-back Stanley Cup champs. It is the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drantz. You can read Drancer's work covering the team at The Athletic as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, so far, this road trip, the Florida team certainly living up to the hype, living up to the billing, because once again, a lot of things to like. From the Canucks last night, I thought. Pretty decent performance, all things considered, but not enough to knock off the back-to-back Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning. I don't know that I loved the Canucks' game last night, especially in the third period when they started pressing and all of a sudden it was like 2-on-0, breakaway, yep. Braden Point breakaway, 2-on-1. Uh, like, I thought they I thought they got really sloppy, and, and they got the 3-2 goal, but... Shout out to Tyler Mott. Shout out... Oh shout out and then some we're gonna see Woo! we're gonna see a regina pats goal that looks an awful lot like that right connor bedard connor bedard whose favorite player is tyler mott yes. which is by the way like the most charming thing it's so great from a top prospect ever um yeah west vancouver's answer to Braden point uh big tyler mott stan i love it he's definitely gonna score that goal uh, tyler mott and matthew highmore um you know they like did Pedersen lend them his skills? Is that maybe what's gone on? Like he just like <laughs> lent them. Is this a Monstars situation? Yeah, he just like they... lent them his hands yeah. for the evening. They stole Elias Pedersen's mojo because that, that Tyler Mott shot too. Or sorry, that the Matthew Highmore shot, shot yep. far down, like, a- absolute laser beam yep. from Highmore. Uh, the Canucks, they, they, the Canucks fourth line didn't just score goals; they scored beautiful goals. Yeah, they scored the nicest goals on the night. No, no doubt about it. <laughs> that Tyler Mott goal is one of the that might be the nicest Canucks goal of the year. Uh, yeah, so far for sure. I don't think there's a lot of competition. No, frankly. So no, I mean, great performance from the fourth line. The fact is, is that I thought Vancouver was held at bay pretty significantly by yeah. the Lightning, and I know people are pointing to the shot clock, but. Every shot that Tampa Bay had seemed like it was a five-alarm chance. When they had it in zone, they were just, like, passing the puck around, waiting for perfect opportunities. They kind of just hung around waiting for the chance that mattered. It felt like they were problem-solving at will and that when the game was close, they had the answer. And so, you know, it just – look, the Canucks played well, but it didn't feel like a game they could have or should have won. Yeah. You know, like there's a pretty key line there. There's a line between performing well and a line before actually being right there with the other team and you didn't win because that's sports. And the Canucks like played well in a game they were always going to lose and in a game in which as it unfolded wasn't that dramatic. And so as we look at this team and say they played really well against these juggernauts in Florida and that's totally 100% true. They also at no point led. Right. And and. You know, aside from about 15 minutes in the second period against the Panthers, maybe even less, 10 minutes in the second period against the Panthers, I don't felt like at any point I thought there was suspense about the outcomes. And so that's too bad. That's too bad. I I think as we sort of build up the recipe list for what these Canucks losses looked like, right? Sturdy five-on-five play. Special teams let them down. Uh, Goaltending was good 
in my opinion, Demko was far better than people in this market are saying he was, or even than he probably would say he was. I don't think there's a single soft goal in either of those games that you'd look back and say, um, you know, that was that was a letdown moment for the club. Um, I'm sure he would have liked to have the Sorelli backhand or maybe the Madman backhand, but that's because Demko's a perfectionist who has yeah. really high standards, and he should, but for me... You know, I, I think uh, I, I think the goaltending was good, but not superhuman the it way it has been. It wasn't decisive. It wasn't. Well, well it wasn't he, superhuman. Yeah, like Demko has been, you know, the goaltending god's representative on earth for the last month, and now he was just like a really good NHL goalie, and the difference in that quality is, is significant, and it showed. And when you add all of that up, doesn't that sound like a familiar game script? Don't 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 you feel like we've done game breakdowns post game? Uh, being like, hey, they were good five on five. Like, they were good five on five, but the special teams, oh yep. boy. And look at what this team looks like when the goaltending's not great. Uh, it felt like they felt like familiar losses, which I think is perhaps more concerning for me, just because we all want to believe that there's something different about this team after the changes in, in leadership and behind the bench. And to me, those losses, and, and granted, there's a ton of context around them that needs to be accounted for. Those losses were sort of a return to the mean of what we've seen from this team so far. Improved five-on-five play, um, and and yet uh, lo- games that are lost and lost relatively convincingly because of you know some flaws in the overall talent level and construction. Six fifty, six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Hit us up with your thoughts about last night's game. Your thoughts going into a couple of games on the weekend. We'll look ahead to those a little the later. Bengals the Raiders. Yeah, thoughts on the Bengals right, Raiders. Right. Who you got? <laughs> Obviously, Joe Burrow. <laughs> Uh, Dunbar Lumber, the smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street and Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And Jancer, this road trip was really set up and it was us doing the setting up, but it was also the team in a lot of ways acknowledging it as a, a measuring stick road trip, right? You're going up against these elite teams, these teams that expect to be in contention for the Stanley Cup this year with Tampa certainly every year. That's their expectation. This was looked at, again, by both people inside the team, people outside the team, as a chance to really learn something about the Vancouver Canucks. A really important opportunity to evaluate this team and where it is right now, which we know is such an important question for Jim Rutherford and the rest of his staff to answer over the next couple of months. Now, we've only played two games of the road trip, still three of them coming up, right? I'm curious to hear from our listeners and from you as well what we have actually learned, if anything, about the Canucks so far in this road trip. Because to me, I look at it, going into the trip, you kind of set up this dichotomy, right? Where it's, we could either learn that, you know, they could get run out of the barn in all these games and look just disastrous, and then you know it's time to blow it up and take the team in another direction, or they could have these incredible performances, and then, holy cow, this playoff race is, it's getting real, because they managed to take a bunch of points on this Florida road trip. And right now, I feel like we're just right, in the middle of those two extremes, right? Where they've played pretty well. They certainly have not been embarrassed. They haven't been run off the ice or anything like that. But you've also seen the gap between them and the true Stanley Cup contenders. And the thing that stood out to me last night watching Tampa Bay was the best teams have so many different ways that they can win a game. Because the Canucks, as you said, they did a pretty good job controlling play at 5-on-5, especially against an elite team on the road in Tampa Bay Lightning. But... The thing with Tampa is they have all of these redundancies built in to their game, right? Even if they're not, you know, on the absolute peak of their game, five on five, they have other paths to victory. They have the best goaltender in the NHL. 
They won the special teams battle last night. They can play incredible defense and just choke the life out of a game with the lead, which I thought we really saw from them over the latter stages of that game. Yeah. They they don't need to rely on just one thing to win. And with the Canucks, the margins are still very thin, right? Unlike with Tampa. Tampa can, you know, be off their games in certain spots and still win and still win pretty easily. The Canucks are just not there. And Tampa's special in this regard, though. Like, one thing that Tampa did last year in the playoffs that so impressed me was they bump into the Panthers, and the Panthers want to play run and gun. And Tampa was like, we can play that way and beat you. And then they bumped into the Carolina Hurricanes, and the Carolina Hurricanes want to play punt and hunt, right? And they want to play a north-south game. And, you know, it's it's fast, but it's not necessarily high event. And the Lightning were like, perfect. We have the personnel to do that too. Yep. And then they bumped into the, who did they beat in the conference final again? Would have, was it the Islanders again? The Islanders, right. And then, and remember remember at the last three games of that series, they're all one nothing games. Remember? Yeah. They were like, they were like, oh, you want to play Barry Trotz shut down hockey? Like, guess what? We can beat you at that. And then they play the Montreal Canadiens and the Montreal Canadiens wanted to like play between the whistles and play that like punk hockey, you know, that like overachieving playoff style punk yep. hockey. And they were like, ha, 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 we can do that. <laughs> Good luck, boys. And then, and then, you know, remember like Gallagher's face? In game two and stuff, they were just like taking pot that was shots. Iconic. He was beat up. Yeah, they were, they were just taking pot shots at the Montreal Canadiens. They were like, "Oh, you want to win as a goon team? Guess what? We can do that too." Like they're the ultimate stunting on you. Like they take your style and they're like, Haha, "We can play your game and beat you at it." And then occasionally they go into an extra gear that they have. Right? Yeah. Like they are a weird mirror image hockey team, or they were at their best. One thing. One thing I really thought last night was that their bottom six looked slow. I thought, especially against Highmore and Mott, um, but also against Hoaglander uh, and Pod Colson, like, I thought the Canucks' legs in transition exposed Tampa Bay's bottom six a fair bit. I thought there were moments where it looked like the How much Lightning... are they missing that line? Oh, Gold, so much. Coleman, Gord, and... Uh, so much. But, but, I mean, that third line with Maroon and Perry, right? And then on your fourth line, you've got... Kachuk and Radish, yeah. you know, no burners, right? There's just and, – and, I mean, it helps, I think, when you bump Matthew Joseph down the lineup because you have Andres Palat. But, I mean, if there's a team that needs – like, they're going to need more speed. When you look at how the Panthers play and how fast they're, they are and think about, you know, the lightning route through the playoffs includes them. Uh, I, I throw Toronto in there, too. I know everyone's just like, LOL, Toronto in the playoffs. But, um, you know, Toronto has, you know, four lines that can move, too. Yeah. I think I think Tampa Bay is going to need to be faster in their bottom six group if they're going to three-peat. Like, that's so, a desperate thing they need. Might be looking for some speed in the bottom six, you say. If, if only there was a, a speedy bottom six player who pulled off an incredible highlight reel goal in Tampa's building last night that they might be curious about. Who? M- Matthew Highmore? Matthew Highmore. <laughs> Got a couple of options. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I think I think they're going to make that type of move. They, they have to. They really have to. They need, they need a couple, um, you know, like... I I I wonder about a guy like Ryan Dezingle. Yeah. You know, like that type of sort of low cost, low cap hit type of forward acquisition just to just to flesh out and give them some legs of a little further down the lineup, I think would make a huge difference. But even that with that, you know, deficiency, relatively speaking, to what we've seen from Tampa teams in the past, still such an impressive outfit. And again, the thing that really stood out to me more than anything was the way they were able to shut the Canucks down 
throughout the course of that game. Like the Canucks had a lot of shots, just eating plays for breakfast. And then Sorelli, who's of course an elite defensive player and you just go up and down the lineup and they were so, so structured, so disciplined, so on it defensively that the Canucks just couldn't generate the volume of grade A scoring chances. I know there were some, obviously Bo Horvat's chance set up by Elias Pettersson. There were others, but it didn't feel like they were consistently getting the volume of grade A scoring chances that they needed to. And, you know, we have one person texting in here saying like, hey, I think you guys are still having PTSD from the early season. This team still looks much better than it did under Travis Green, even after these two losses. And that that's fair because, again, these weren't embarrassing, dismal losses, right? Like, go they back played, to the... They played well. Yeah, exactly. I, I think we're saying they played well, Exactly. We? But I, in some ways, there are still some of the same issues cropping up. And well, they're the not, to, not to the same degree, but when... So this is something we talked about a lot earlier in the season where they would have a fair amount of the puck, but they couldn't get those legit scoring chances. Now, it's easier said than done against Tampa Bay, right? Like they're an elite 100%. team at shutting that down. So that's fair. You have to take that conversation, you know, you have to take that context into account when you're having the conversation. But it still just keeps coming back to the issue of the high-end talent for me. And I know when when the conversation turns to goal scoring and the forward production, obviously Elias Pettersson is going to be front and center. But, you know, Elias Pettersson isn't the only one who hasn't generated offense in, the, in these first two games on this road trip. And I just look at it, that to me, if we're talking about the major decisions that have to be made by Jim Rutherford and the rest of his front office before the trade deadline, figuring out exactly what you have from this group of forwards who is supposed to be the strength of the team. Yes, I know there's Thatcher Demko and there's Quinn Hughes, and they've both been exceptional this year. But going into the season, you would have said the top six is the strength of this team. Really, only JT Miller has performed at a star level yeah. of that group, right? Like, Connor Garland has been really good. Wouldn't call him a star player. JT Miller has been a star. But you're counting on Elias Pettersson, obviously, to be yep. a star. Brock Besser to be a star. Bo Horvat to be near that level. Those guys haven't been stars either this year. And I think... Nope. Yes, Elias Pettersson is a major part of the conversation. We'll talk about his move to the wing. We'll talk about the power play and all of that. But when you see that the Canucks play pretty well in these games, but they just don't get those moments from their high-end players, to me it really reinforces that's that's the decision that needs to be made here. Is what do we have in this group of forwards? Who needs to stay? Who can we move on from? That That's the major question, I think, facing Jim Rutherford right now. I, I agree with you because the defense, I mean, Myers bounce back. Ekman Larson bounce back, even Pullman's defensive contributions, Quinn Hughes's defensive improvement. I mean, to a man, you move, go up and down the Canucks defense and the analytics will will tell you and the eye test sort of vouches for it a bit as well that most of these guys are performing to like their 10th percentile ceiling yeah. over the course of the season. And yet, I don't think you can divorce the Canucks' struggles from the makeup of this back end, right? Bruce Boudreaux talked about it this week, the need for more puck-moving defenders. I still think part of this team's issue is that they don't have a dynamic, modern defense capable of supporting the attack, right? I mean, when you have Luke Shen in your top four, right? Yep. When you have Myers and ekman Larson in, in shutdown minutes, although ekman Larson has been phenomenal defensively. Um, you know, when, when even your third pair... Um, has Brad Hunt, who's moved the puck really well, but also Tucker Pullman. Uh, I just, I don't know that the Canucks 
forwards are I don't know that the team is transitioning with enough danger and when you contrast it with the way that the Florida Panthers for example uh, when we saw it attack as a five-man unit or some of those chances that Sergeyev and Hedman had the way that um, Kucherov interplays with defenders up top even Yan Ruda the way he's on in on the forecheck on occasion uh, the way that they are uh, playing and attacking as a five-man group I think there's a level there in terms of, again, not play without the puck, but play with the puck, that the Canucks aren't hitting routinely enough with their defense score. Yeah, and the reason I say that the the future of the forward group is kind of a more pressing decision that Jim Rutherford has to make, it's not because the forward group is in a worse spot than the blue line. Yeah, it's yeah. because the blue line is a known quantity that yeah. needs to be improved Yeah, for the reasons you said. Now, we it, thought the forwards could hang. Exactly. And this season it hasn't looked exactly. like it Exactly. And right now they're not doing it. I, I, You're seeing the gap against the real top teams that have guys playing like stars up front. Now, you know me. I love to check perception against the odds. Sure. Right? And so if you look through the underlying profile of most of Vancouver's top forwards, on ice shooting percentage in particular. So in the contemporary NHL, right? Like this is this is a I'm I'm getting into a theory a little bit, but bear with me because it's really important, right? In the contemporary NHL, goaltenders are extraordinarily good, right? And so percentages are relatively fixed except for the most special players in the game, Stamkos being one of them and we saw why sure. with his time machine shot. Um Sidney Crosby used to do it just by being the best down low grinder, right? When all your shots are for ten, from 10 feet out, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, you you might score a little more often than most, but 95% of NHL players over a long period of time will will settle within a pretty narrow band in terms of on-ice shooting percentage. It's about 7.5 to about 9.5% with some some sustainable variance for skill, and then there's some guys, Sedin Twins were two of them, Crosby, Stamkos, yeah. Um, you know, there's a few guys who meaningfully drive percentages, right? So this is the this is back to the there's guys that can set the table, guys that can feast. Now, if you look through Vancouver Canucks forwards on ice shooting percentage five on five, you have Brock Besser at three point eight, three point eight percent. Yeah. You have Elias Pettersson at five percent. He's like career twelve, right? Um, you have Bo Horvat, who's also sub six percent, right? So you have three guys who are, who we know are not just above-average finishers, but excellent finishers, right? Like, excellent finishers in the NHL, all of whom are finishing like they're Scott Gomez or Travis Moen over the course of the first half of the season. And guess what? That's not going to last, right? But while it's happening, it impacts your perception of the game, your lying eyes, so much, right? So much of your frustration with this Canucks attack is honestly... And and some of it might be structural, especially with the really conservative way that they played with the puck in the first 25 games. But um, I think the vast majority of it is just really bad bounces for a, for yeah. a handful of Vancouver's most lethal uh, attackers at 5-on-5. Five five. And I do think that over the second half of the season, you're going to see all of those guys produce an awful lot more than they have to this point regardless of how they actually play, just because of regression, just because these are not you know, outlier, fourth-line guys with no hands. This Brock Besser is not Daniel Winnick, right? Like, the, these guys are going to begin to finish. Um, you know, Bo Horvat's not Luke Glendening. <laughs> like, come on! Come on! So, uh, this is one thing that I'd just suggest uh, in terms of checking that view and, and that I think new management needs to be really careful about, right, is there is a, a lot of evidence that suggests that while... 
Clearly, Pedersen's performance hasn't been good enough. Clearly, Besser's performance hasn't been good enough. Clearly, you need more offensively from Bo Horvat. Some of it, anyway, is likely to prove ephemeral and is actually yeah. not related to performance, but just random distribution. And when I say the future of the How mad are fans going to be appearing that? But it's true. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's true. I, I would bet a lot on it. When I say the, you know, the future of the forward group and the ceiling of this kind of core group of forwards, of young forwards, is a question that needs to be answered, that could easily be the answer that the management group comes to, right? They, they or look at it, it and say, you know what? We still believe in this group. We still believe in the talent. This has been a down year for them, but we think this is the foundation at forward for us going forward. And I think that's a legitimate answer. Yeah, and I'd also I don't want to be in the spot where people are like, "Oh, you're you're you know you always are so so um, easy on Pedersen. Like we have to hold these guys to a higher standard. They get paid the big bucks." And like I get it, I get it, but I cannot look at this roster. I cannot. I just it it. it I cannot look at this roster, look up and down, look at the problems, look at the team performance, watch every game, break down what's going wrong, and, and say that like long term the biggest issue is their best players. Like it's not, no. it's not. I, I need to see what they look like with normalized percentages and with a defensive group that can properly s- support an attack before I'm willing to be like, oh well, you know, I had it wrong on all of these guys that I think are top line caliber players. The defense. The point about the defense is interesting, and not just right? me. Just like creating, of course, creating an environment where you can like really legitimately evaluate what your forwards are doing. It reminds me a little bit of you know in the NBA or something when you have a young post player, but you don't have a point guard who can get him the ball, right? And you think, well, how can you evaluate this guy because the support system, the environment isn't in place? And that is an interesting point about the Canucks blue line, and maybe it is just the case. You know, Tambier Texan. Uh, they need Rathbone to come in and help offensively from the back end, and I would like to see that at some that point. Would be this fantastic. Year I don't think that's going to single-handedly, you know, change the dynamic we're seeing from the back end. But I do think it is indisputable that they're going to need more dynamic talent on the blue line who can chip in offensively. You just look at the way the league is going. Boudreaux has talked about it. That's obviously a need. As you say, if you get that environment in place, maybe that's when the real evaluation of, you know, exactly where Pedersen will settle, like what his, what his level will be for the next, you know, four or five seasons, what Horvat's level will be, what Besser's level will be. I agree. I, if I'm the one making the decision, I still think I'm betting on Elias Pedersen. I'm betting that he can be the best player on a Stanley Cup team. Like I'm still willing to make that bet, even for what we've seen well, through the first part of the and season. And let's get let's get deep into it on the other side of the break because Pedersen had a really good game, even as the amplification around him in terms of the disappointment that this city's collectively working through in you know evaluating and and watching his season unfold. Uh, sort of hit a fever pitch. I thought uh, uh, really took a U-turn to Silly Town. Uh, yesterday in terms of the conversation around Elias Pettersson. And yet, on the wing, I thought that line was fantastic. Let's 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 really we'll get deep into, into it. it. We'll dig into it for sure. That's coming up, plus lots of your texts coming in. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. By the way, don't forget, subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, leave us a five-star rating and a five-star review as well. Lots more Canucks discussion coming up. We'll get into the Elias Pettersson conversation. Look ahead to another pair of daunting games coming up on the weekend for the Canucks. You've got it on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. It is the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. One more segment to go here in the show. Jamie Dodd. Canucks insider Thomas Drance here with you as always. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. 
Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And Drancer, just before the break, we teased this conversation a little bit. We were talking about the status right now of the Canucks collection of forwards at the top of their lineup, supposed to be a strength of this team, certainly was looked that way coming in to the season. Where do they stand right now? What does the future hold for that group of players? And look, as much as we can extend that conversation to Brock Besser, to Bo Horvat, as much as we can offer plaudits to JT Miller for the year he's having, when you're talking about what's happening with the Canucks high-end forwards right now, the conversation is always going to come back to Elias Pettersson. And we saw Bruce Boudreaux switch things up, moved him to the wing. Apparently he asked for it. As Boudreaux said, he's been mentioning, hey, I wouldn't mind playing left wing here. He's asked for it before, so he gets his wish. And it's, as you said before, it, it kind of, the conversation around Elias Pettersson seemed to really, there was a lot of frustration from Canucks fans last night. And in a weird way, to me, it's almost because he did have a pretty strong game, right? It's because there were chances that he was generating that didn't mm-hmm. get finished, and that amplified the conversation. But I do think if you just look at, the process, that experiment of having him with Horvat and with Garland playing Pedersen on the wing, that was a very dangerous line for long stretches of the game last night for Tampa, or for Vancouver. Yeah, they outchanced the Tampa Bay Lightning 8-1 with Pedersen, Garland, and Horvat on the ice. They outshot them 10-4. Uh, they had the look of a line for whom it is just a matter of time. And Boudreaux mentioned, actually, that he would have bet midway through the game yeah. that this was a breakthrough game for Pedersen. Didn't come to pass, but, you know, that's the right way of looking at it, right? I mean, he was getting those looks. It was only a matter or it's only a matter of time now for that line if they're given some run together. And I see no reason why they wouldn't. Like, you have to stick with it. I'd, I'd mention one other thing, which is that how often have we talked about Horvat? and Garland's stylistic clash on this yep. program, right? I mean, the the Garland spin cycle and then Horvat's straight line game and his bull rushes and how, for whatever reason, when they played together, they're both great, but it doesn't seem to work. Uh, I felt like with Pedersen, it sort of blended it all together. And look, there were some chances that weren't just stopped. I mean, I, I think about the one-timer shot right after Bo Horvat got stoned that yep. um, Pedersen kind of duffed off the heel of his stick. Uncharacteristic, based on his former standard, par for the course for him this year. Because when it rains, it pours sometimes for guys. Uh, but give that line some, give that line some run, and and good things will happen if if they can continue to control play and generate the way they did against Tampa Bay on Thursday night. Uh, one other thing on Pedersen, clearly there's clearly there's more going on in terms of his confidence level and in terms of what's going on between the ears and in terms of where his game is at you can read it on his body language you can read it on his body language after practice in the Bruce Boudreaux mic'd up video uh you know this is a guy who I, I do think is struggling through some real stuff beyond just bad luck yeah and you know young men that happens I I was a complete butt at the age of 23 personally and I- you know figured it out to some extent although your mileage may vary. And, uh, you know, I, I can understand I can understand working through those things uh, as you sort of try on different things in your life before sort of figuring out and, and coming back to, you know, who you really are with, with a little bit more self-confidence. I do think that Pedersen's going to be fine. Um, I thought he played really well last night, which is why it was so funny, I think. And, and I think you're right. It was because you could see a familiar 
type of assertiveness that that looked like he was about to break out, and then when it didn't happen, that maybe caused the U-turn to, to Silly Town that I think we the Pedersen conversation is now ways, taken. It's almost it was almost worse just from a. An, an instinctive kind of visceral reaction point of view is almost worse than him having an invisible game, right? Because if he's invisible and he's just not on the puck, he's not generating chances, he's out of sight, out of mind, right? In that game, he was front and center in a lot of the action, and it just didn't result in goals. And that increased the frustration. Dino and Vancouver Texan, to my eyes, Pedersen is looking better. His passing is coming back. His play on the Canucks side of the red line is strong. He still seems to get a brain cramp when he has a chance to score. Perhaps one or two goals will give him the confidence to break through. I, I thought it was a brilliant idea to put him on the wing. And I think that's a good way of summing it up, is we are seeing more of the kind of away from the puck things and the playmaking comeback. I mean, he had that great pass to set up Horvat in the slot We also last saw night. the anticipation last night, I thought. Like, yeah. in terms of... We saw a couple things that I think are really core to what Pedersen does well. One is just being really disciplined about going to the net. I, th- I thought that part of his game was there. And then being the fastest track pucks or loose pucks that are that are in the offensive end. I saw a lot of that from him last night. Those, to me, are good signs. But again, I'm tired of looking for signs oh, of sure. it. Oh, sure. And especially when, as Dino texts in, you know, for whatever reason, when the puck is on his stick in the key moment and it's yeah. time to put the puck in the net, it's... Either double clutching, overthinking it, missing the net, whiffing on the chance altogether. Something goes wrong. And some of that is luck, right? Like some of those chances will regress. But I do think it's progressed beyond that where there is some block when it comes to those scoring chances. No and, and that was such a trademark of him that he had that killer instinct in those key moments, 100%. right? That he was going to label that puck top corner. And that's what we're still waiting to see. And it's great that you're getting the breakaway opportunities. You're setting up, you're setting us, uh, setting up other, other players for great opportunities. But until we see Elias Pedersen look like that, just sniper, that cold blooded sniper with the puck that we know he can be, you're right. We're, it's still going to feel like we're squinting and kind of desperately trying to find these signs 100%. of progress. Uh, the other text that come in that came he in need, here, there needs to be some bottom line. There needs to be some cutting edge. That's the thing because there's always been that with him before, yeah. right? Like that's that's what yeah you he expect. used to be all scalpel. It was all cutting edge. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He, he was surgical is a great way to put it, mm-hmm. right? He has not been surgical uh, to say the least so far this year. Uh, this one comes in and it's something I wanted to touch on as well. Why is Pedersen in front of the goalie? He is a shooter. Stop dropping the puck back also when trying to enter the zone uh, on a power play. Got it. Got to have the drop pass comments in here but to the point of playing Elias Pettersson in front of the net on the power play look I'm, I'm a pretty open-minded guy when when a unit is struggling or when a player is struggling I don't have a problem switching things up trying something a little bit out of the box but you also have to put players in a position to be successful you have to put them in a position to maximize their skill set to get the most out of what they do well that's not in front of the net for Elias Pettersson. Obviously, that's not in front of the net. Yeah, I can't. I mean, he can do it, but I agree with you. I think the one of the issues with having Pettersson down low, Horvat and Miller at the flanks with Hughes up top is that around your diamond, you've got all lefties. You know, if you've if you've got it set up like that, Besser needs to be the guy getting the lion's share of shots, but the way that it works, I think you limit the ability for the type of Horvat Pedersen Miller rotation that I think should be the bread and butter for this power play. I think Pedersen can do the net front. I think Horvat can do the net front. I think Miller can do the net front. What I want to see is them all do it in various stages right. of the power play. For whatever reason that that power play has um 
has all the talent. It has a really good underlying profile. It should be a top 10 power play. I think they will finish the year in roughly that spot. Like if you if you told me to bet uh, under over 11.5 on on Canucks ranking in terms of like how highly they rank among NHL teams, I'd bet the over. So I believe that the Canucks power play will be good. I thought a lot of their issues last night stemmed not from Pedersen being at the net front, but from an inability to set up, right? From the way that Tampa was able to disrupt them up high. And, you know, one thing one thing I do think we've seen a little bit less of since, and I don't know if they maybe got out of rhythm or, or what exactly has gone on, but there hasn't been nearly as much of the dangerous type of interplayer creativity cross-seam between Horvat and Miller that I felt like was a hallmark of their Boudreaux bump uh, success yeah. five on four. We've seen less of that, and I think that shines a spotlight on the fact that, yeah, I mean, ideally you'd like Pedersen being at that right circle, just howitzering one-timers home. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't think he's miscast at the net front, personally. Like, I really don't think he's miscast there because he is willing to stand in there. He does have good hands. I think he's got a good feel for taking the goaltender's eyes. Um, I think he anticipates well. I think he gets to, he might not win the battle outright, but he gets to retrieval spots and at least uh, bogs them down, helps the Canucks retain possession. Like, I like all of those attributes. I just want to see him do that and. Like, I want to see him do more than that on the power play. Right now he's not. And that just comes back to something that has been a talking point for the power play all year and really even into last year (laughs) as well, which is some movement, some fluidity, some creativity, right? Like, it doesn't have to be as static as it so often is with guys especially when as you say they have a lot of versatile players right like jt miller can play anywhere on that power play he, he's he's very versatile he has the skill set to do a lot of different things In goal brock besser yeah why not brock <laughs> besser same thing with elias Pettersson. bo horvat it feels like whoever's at the net front is the guy who's playing worse <laughs> you know it's like the punishment spot now <laughs> just stick him there yeah. and see how it goes but for whatever reason all of this talent and all of these guys who should be able to be very versatile and very flexible on the power play it ends up just being really stagnant and you know i know boudreau was asked about it yesterday and he said you know i think they're trying to be too cute i want to see him shoot it more that's kind of the stock nhl coach answer to me about when it comes to the power play right ah, shoot it more i'm not entirely sure that's the answer like maybe that's a little bit of it because you still you don't want to I don't think you want to settle for a power play that's just content to shoot it from all angles right you do want to be generating those really high quality looks I, I agree with you but also shots create pressure true and and pull Force people the defense out of possession to scramble. yeah that's yeah fair. like I mean I think I think you can shoot you can shoot to score you need you need to shoot to score but you can also shoot to threaten right and and you can do both at the same time I mean. There are quality looks that you can't afford to pass up. I just can't think of a moment on the power play where I thought that should have been a shot last night. And what ends up happening... You know, I just I didn't feel like they had the sustained pressure yeah. to even get to the point where I was, you know, like, where if I was a fan who'd had three too many, I would have yelled, shoot. Like, I, I, did they even have that moment? You know what I find ends up happening a lot, too, is they, they're having trouble getting set up and getting in a rhythm. They haven't got that, you know legitimate shooting opportunity and then it comes back to Quinn Hughes on the point and you get the sense he's almost feeling frustrated so he's like you know what I'm going to shoot this because we haven't got a shot yet and I'm going to shoot it and it ends up being kind of a low quality shooting opportunity you know it doesn't get through or it's an easy save or whatever and they end up giving up possession but there's almost this oh man we got to get a shot here so I'm just going to let it fly even though we haven't done the legwork to actually make it a, a dangerous 
as you said, not even just a dangerous scoring opportunity, but a chance to use the shot to create some pressure in other ways. It's just kind of, we're out of ideas, so I guess I'm going to shoot it now. And that is, I think, what they got to get away from on the power play. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I would... I would expect they'll tweak something, right? We'll see some players move about. It's too bad. This is one of those days where it's too bad we're not at practice. Um, yeah. Because I'd expect them to tweak something before the games against Carolina and Washington. One thing that's clearly true, though, is that like Vancouver can't keep bleeding points in games where they outperform their opponent five on five. No. Because of special teams. No. Like, the logic of this team requires great goaltending and good special teams. Like they're not good enough five on five. They're not a killer five on five no. team. They can't cover their issues at five on five by just dominating play. And especially against Carolina, who's one of the best five on five teams in hockey, right? Like they're going to really struggle to outshoot and control play against Carolina the way they have, even against two Florida teams yep. that are also good five on five. Um, Washington is also the special teams team, right? Like they are the team that will crush you uh, in terms of the outside five on five uh, moments of the game. Like this is a huge test for Vancouver and they can't afford to keep bleeding goals against or, or bleeding goal differential. Um, when they're shorthanded or their opponents. And the conversation around Elias Patterson and Brock Besser and Bo Horvat looks completely different if the power play is clicking as well, right? Even if they're still not putting up the performances you want at five on five, at least they would have that element to kind of fall back on. And, yep. and it's something to hang your hat on because as you said, and Boudreaux said it last night as well, we're a team, in Boudreaux's words, that needs to have power play success to win games. That that much is obvious. And you go back to the nineteen twenty season, which was kind of the high water mark for this iteration of Yeah, they led know. the NHL in power play goal differential. Yeah. Right? They not not in terms of percentage, but in terms of They had a ton of opportunities. And but they yeah. outscored their opponents when they were on the power play uh, by a wider margin than any other team in the NHL. They do not make the playoffs without it. They were outscored five on five by eleven goals that season. And it didn't even matter. Uh, right now, the Canucks have only been outscored at 5-on-5 five five by, like, two. Like, they're a better 5-on-5 five five team than they were in 1920. But without the special teams to make that, you know, make that hold up, yeah. it kind of doesn't matter. You need that element. Well, and let's let's pivot to this weekend. Boudreaux said one goalie will start each game. Yeah. So that means Halak's going to be one game played away from the bonus, right? Which is a situation we're all sort of tracking, Um you know, I, I brought it up as a tell for Jim Rutherford on on a, on a Vancast a few weeks ago, and now it's become like a big thing that everyone's talking about. But the it is an interesting dynamic, um, and and one in which Halak is in complete control because he's got a bulletproof no movement clause. So remember that. Then, and this of course is if Halak plays ten games, he gets a one point two five million dollar bonus, which would be paid against the next Canucks cap, cap next year yeah. because they're an LTI. So. With the Canucks looking through, you know, this weekend's games, first of all, I think you got to take your best shot against Carolina. And not super helpful that the Columbus Blue Jackets lit up the Carolina Hurricanes last night because you know the Carolina Hurricanes are going to be a hungry Worst team. case scenario. Worst a, case scenario. Pissed off, angry, looking to bounce back, looking to really, you know, take their frustrations out on somebody Carolina Hurricanes When you're team. playing game 39 of the season, you don't want to be playing it against an opponent for whom it means more than game 39. Yeah. You know, and, and the Canucks will be facing a, a highly motivated Carolina Hurricanes team on Saturday, albeit a highly motivated Carolina Hurricanes team that doesn't project to have Jacob Slavin. Right? So, good opportunity there, but also a huge test. 
And while Carolina was tired, the Canucks win over Carolina in Vancouver, uh, you know, in the early part of the Boudreaux era. Not the most convincing game they played, right? I mean, I remember they scored the 2-1 goal. They scored the 2-1 goal at the end of the first period, and it, and it came uh, against a stretch in which the Carolina Hurricanes had taken 22 yes. of the last 24 shot attempts, right? It's like, okay. So, big test in Carolina, and then you go to Washington, and luckily Washington also plays the night before. So, not a pure schedule loss, but certainly a tough one, especially as they have a you know a harder travel bit from North Carolina up to, um, well, and you typically can't fly into Dulles, um, actually that's a really tough travel day because you can't, you typically don't fly into the DC, um, airport, like the DC area airport on a charter flight for national security reasons. Right. You have to go to Maryland and drive in. So that's actually an annoying travel day for the Canucks playing in Washington on the second leg of a back-to-back is even more annoying than it is doing it in most other cities because you also have a uh, commute yeah, once you airport. land from yeah. the airport. Um, so yeah, that's that's too bad. That's actually too bad. I hadn't really considered that, but that's not ideal. So Canucks are going to get in relatively early, at least. At least it's not a night game, but um, not a not a pure scheduled loss, but a really tough game yeah, to be playing. It, it tired. It's kind of a scheduled loss, right? Like maybe well, it's not three and four. Yeah, it's but but at least it's not. Um, at least they're not against a rested Caps opponent. Sure, you know that would be a pure schedule loss. So you need points from one of those two. You need to win one of those two. Because you do not want to roll into Tootsie's on Sunday night having lost four in a row. No. It's not fun for anybody. No. You want to enjoy yourself. And <laughs> their backs are already up against the wall here in terms of salvaging something from this road trip, right? And, yeah. you know, as much as maybe the conversation after these two losses, and I've seen, you know, people text in, hey, I'm, I'm putting the playoff race talk to bed. Certainly the players obviously won't be doing that. And, hey... They win the next three games on this road trip. All of a sudden, you know, you feel really, really good about your performance on this road trip. Their playoff odds also haven't dented too significantly. Because of some other things happening in the Pacific Division around And, yeah, Yeah. based on the athletic model, which we all know I love, right? We all know I love. Yes. Their their playoff odds are only down a percent or two over the course of this week. Again, because the Alberta teams are flatlining and because, you know, at the end of the day, the Canucks weren't, the model never really expected them to win those games in Florida, right? Like they didn't expect them to win those games in Florida. So, um, you know, but they do need, they do need to win. I think they need to come out of this weekend with two points. Well, it just puts a ton of pressure on these two games, like a, yeah. an immense amount yep. of pressure on these two games to, to find a way to kind of get get that momentum back that they had. And again, it's easy to say, well, yeah, you were always going to struggle or this was always going to be such a difficult road trip, but I think that kind of excuse or context only goes so far probably in the minds of the players, right? They still expect to be going out there and being competitive and finding points. And, you know, as I said, now their back's kind of against the wall going in to this weekend. And just to bring it back to uh, the power play conversation a little bit here as we look and, you know, as you were saying, special teams is going to be so important, especially in that matchup with the Carolina Hurricanes tomorrow, but also against Washington, who are an excellent special teams uh, club. Marcus and Gibson says, is there a clear difference between the power play we have now uh, and ones that Boudreaux has run in the past? Will he change to an old system or is he just going to try and tweak this one? That one is from Marcus and Gibson's. And, you it's know, an, it's, this is actually a really interesting point, especially as Boudreaux is about to go back to Washington. Yeah. Because Washington changed, you know, one of the biggest tactical innovations in the NHL is the one three one And that was Adam Oates. That came in after 
right? That came into Washington after Boudreaux. So Washington had a potent power play under Boudreaux, but it wasn't a super contemporary looking power play. It was more of a shooting power play. Um, I mean, Ovi, Ovi, they were probably running something closer to like an old school umbrella. Ovi still played the point. It's just he wasn't necessarily a, a flanker, right? It wasn't specialized the way it is now. Now, you look around, there are 32 NHL teams with two units each. Every single one runs a one through one And that's the that's like, that's one of the big Ovechkin legacies, right? Like Ovechkin fundamentally altered the way that NHL power plays play in a way that I don't think we're going away from anytime soon. Like no. the, the tactical similarity in every NHL power play is complete. A hundred percent. There is no spread power play formation anywhere in the NHL now. And that's, you know, a Washington legacy, but but one that Boudreaux's tenure in Washington or predates. Yeah. It's an interesting sort of dynamic. Well, and think about, just to your point about how kind of total that spread is around the NHL, think of the questions a coach would face if, you know, coming out of training camp, he was like, you know what? Two defensemen on our top power play unit. We're, we're not doing the 1-3-1. One, one. We're, going, <laughs> we're going to, everyone would be like, uh, excuse me? Right? It, it would be a massive, massive story one, if a coach tried to pull that. One, one season in Florida, one season in Florida... Uh, we opened the season with five forwards on the power play. Five forwards. No defenders. Go. No defenders. And uh, so go to uh, Tampa Bay to open the season because, of course, right? And um, it's a close game, third period, uh, two posts on the power play. Two posts on the power play in the first minute of the power play. And then puck goes the other way. Absolute bogus bounce just like a ridiculous unlucky bounce cedric paquette shorthanded goal against how many games do you think that experiment lasted after that yeah not a lot right and it's just like <laughs> and it's just like but the, but you hit iron twice right like yeah. if you if it an inch or two different and maybe that's like the next thing right like maybe that's on the next evolution of the one three one and instead, no one ever does it, right? It's just the line between a bridge too far. The, yeah, the, uh, well, I don't think it is. I think five power. I think five forwards on the power play will come in due time. Maybe not for all teams. Not if you employ Kale McCarr, or Quinn Hughes, or or some of the players who was it Vegas a couple years ago in the playoffs in a six on five situation got six forwards out there. Yeah, they did, yeah. and they that was the Sharks' comeback. Yeah. They won that game. Yeah. Um. Well, and and there's other permutations like the Blackhawks for a little bit. Uh, in their couldn't figure out their power play prime with this Stanley Cup winning core had Duncan Keith at the bumper for a minute and Guy Boucher in the American League had uh, P.K. Subban in the bumper um, like you know when he was coaching the Hamilton Bulldogs yeah. or what have you so it's like you know different different things Zdeno Char has played net front right uh, I want to I still want to see Tyler Myers play net front oh yeah we have text coming in suggesting do that. we yeah good oh, yeah good absolutely. The, you, these guys are paying attention you want a righty <laughs> you want a six foot seven righty at the net front who who has decent puck skills like yeah. the Canucks have the guy the Canucks have the guy put him there aim to shoot through your own d-man yeah I just goalie <laughs> I want to see it I want to see it if you don't want to see hey, it you're not you're not here for fun, for a good time you're but here for a long time I That's ultimately think Long term, you know, the question about, okay, how do you tweak the systems? I get that, and that's valid. But to me, there's a clear five players who should be on the power play, and it's the guys who we saw on power play unit one last night. Like, that's clearly the top power play unit, or should be. And then it's just a question of getting, unlocking the inherent creativity and skill that those players have, right? And maybe that involves an X's and O's tweak here or there. Maybe it involves... 
movie. Tyler Myers on the power play? <laughs> no, it does not involve that. Come Second, on. Second unit? I'm here for it. First unit? No, absolutely not. Why? We're not, we're not going down that road because they have the five guys that should but be able to figure it out. But they don't have the net front guy. They don't. They keep moving around. We haven't seen the net front guy be solved. Yeah. Put a righty there. You can have two righties on the power play. I still think you you have the guys with the skill set who can perform in the net front, whether it's Horvat, Miller, Besser, whatever it is. Don't don't subtract somebody with that level of skill to go for the six foot seven Tyler Myers in front of the net. But look, everyone's frustrated. I understand. Who knows? I'm open what, to it. Who knows? What All Bruce I'm Boudreau saying is I'm open to it. Uh, we will see tomorrow morning what Boudreaux decides to do with the power play. The Canucks in action against the Carolina Hur- Hurricanes. 10 a.m. start tomorrow. Of course, you can hear it all here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, myself and Bick Nazar will be doing your pregame intermission and postgame coverage. Then on Sunday at 11 in the morning, it's the Canucks against the Washington Capitals. Uh, Dan and Randeep will have your coverage on Sunday. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the games. We will be back on Monday. You're listening to the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.